Welcome to the Human Strike Back by Hotjar, the weekly podcast designed to help you succeed by putting people first. I'm David Peralta, and today I am so happy to introduce Lori Schwanbeck, a lovely human being who's been working as a mindfulness consultant with dozens of companies and organizations around the world, like Google, the United Nations, and even the Ministry of Bhutan. In fact, she was still recovering from her flight back from Bhutan when we had this conversation. Lori shares why it's so important to be vulnerable, human, and be yourself at work in order to create connections with others, and how that actually leads to incredibly effective teams, and why mindfulness is such a powerful tool to enable all of that. What I loved so much about this conversation was how Lori was so willing to get personal, and how she invited me to do the same. I opened up a lot during this interview and shared a few things about myself and about what it's like working at Hotjar and how that's enabled me to do some of the best, most effective work of my life. She also walked me through two incredibly quick but effective mindfulness exercises that took less than a minute but led to some pretty meaningful insights. So I hope you follow along and do them as well when you come to them. I'm so glad I had the chance to talk with Lori and I hope you feel just as comfortable with her as I did. So I'd love to start by asking you, how did you get into mindfulness to begin with? And how did that lead you to become a uh, mindfulness consultant? You know, uh, my first exposure to mindfulness was when I was um, in graduate school for psychology, actually. And um, I was studying a type of psychology that was really looking at human potential and human thriving. What, What kind of psychology was that? It's called transpersonal psychology. So it was a blend of Western psychology and Eastern contemplative traditions. So I really got to see how the um, integration of the cultivation of the mind through these uh, practices of mindfulness and meditation could really be supportive of our psychological well-being. And so for 13 years, I ran a mindfulness-based emotional and social, social intelligence training group um, through my psychotherapy practice. And uh, I have a business background, actually, from um, my first phase of life back in Canada. And I got exposed to the Search Inside Yourself curriculum about uh, six years ago, which was very similar to what I'd been offering in my clinical uh, practice with mindfulness-based social-emotional intelligence. And I just thought, wow, this is perfect. For, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Search Inside Yourself Institute, could you give us a little bit of background on the Institute and what, it, what it's all about? Sure. So Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute first started as a program at Google, um, and it was started by a man named Ched Men Cheng, and he uh, was Google engineer number 107, so an early Googler, and um, really wanted to look at what supported him thriving. He'd had some challenges in his own inner life. And so he found that mindfulness practice really helped him. And he thought, wow, if it helps me this much, how can I spread this to other people? And he had this audacious idea of creating the conditions for world peace. And he realized that world peace starts with the inner peace of each of us. So he uh, created a program that combined mindfulness, neuroscience, and emotional intelligence, and first offered that as a program within Google. Now, it became the most popular program for a number of years, David, at Google, um, sold out within minutes, literally. And so it spun off about six years ago and is now its own nonprofit. So we offer these trainings to organizations and institutions worldwide. And so when, uh, first of all, where where did you study uh, transpersonal psychology? My uh, 
training came from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto, which is now Sophia University. It changed its name. My sister actually went to the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. a great school. That was some years ago. Uh, and then, so what was it about your experience with mindfulness that got you hooked, that made you feel that this was something that had to be a part of your life and something that you wanted to share with other people? Well, in my own personal life, um, mindfulness, which is like just that quality of intentionally paying attention and really fully being in the present moment. Um, first, I became aware of that state of uh, attention just by being in nature and really realizing that my capacity for pleasure, for awe, for joy came from really uh, being present with the natural world. And that became an access point for me for um, states of well-being. And then in my clinical practice, I really began to see that that quality of paying attention was something that was actually quite rare, that most of the time we're distracted. We're in our own stories about... Um, what should have happened or what I could have done, some like self-critical thoughts. We're anticipating the future, ruminating about the past. So this kind of um, experience of being in the present moment, I realized was very rare and really important for our well-being. What kind of practice were you doing at the time to help make this a part of your life? A Vipassana practice. So just uh, bringing attention to the present moment, following the breath, and for me, I combined it with my love of outdoors. So I do a lot of my practice um, uh, outside, actually. I have a morning practice of watching the sunrise. Oh, nice. Yeah. And um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Vipassana, could you also give quick background on what that is? Um, Vipassana is a type of meditation. It's an insight-oriented meditation um, that is really... It's it's got a psychological overlay because of the kind of the lineage that brought it through, um, you know, it's first Burma and India and into the United States, primarily with teachers like Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. And it's really about the cultivation of attention through staying present with the breath. And once we begin to settle the mind through mindfulness, through paying attention to the breath, uh, we cultivate more calm, more clarity. And so we have insight into deeper processes of the psyche and of really ultimately of the heart. So there's a deeper connection with our own being through the practice. So it's a very simple practice. It's not a mantra practice like some practices can be. It's very simply uh, staying with the breath and opening to what arises. Uh, and uh, do you mind sharing how often uh, do you practice Vipassana? What is your What does your daily practice look like? My daily practice is an aspiration, David, honestly. Um, I go in and, <laughs> That's That's I go really in and out of it. Um, yeah. You know, I do longer retreats in wilderness, uh, longer Vipassana wilderness retreats. And my daily practice, like I said, I have a sunrise meditation practice, which is just watching the sunrise. So it's, it's a quality of open awareness where I'm paying attention to what's outside of me, noticing what it evokes emotionally in me being aware of my thoughts. So just creating that pause before I start the day and an openness to be with what is. And for me, that influx or influence of nature and of beauty just opens the heart for me. So um, I might include um, a metta or a loving kindness practice of wishing others well, a compassion practice, self-compassion practice for myself if I'm feeling a little bit uh, like I need to 
um, incline my mind and incline the heart, open the heart to kindness. So my morning practice is something that's pretty steady with me. If I don't have a chance to practice on my deck, which I like to do, I will actually practice um, while I'm commuting on the bus, just watching uh, the sunrise over the Golden Gate Bridge, which I'm fortunate enough to be able to commute across every day. So that's my primary practice is that morning practice. Okay, great. And then once you started working with organizations and companies, how do you bring mindfulness and uh, and meditation to, to a, a, a workplace setting, to a place where maybe people wouldn't expect that to be the most logical next step? Well, um, let me, if, if I can answer that with a story, if sure, I may. Sure, please. So yeah. when I first got exposed to the Search Inside Yourself program, I was, observe, I was an, a participant observer at Google. And I got paired with a young Google engineer, a young guy, And um, we did a practice called mindful listening, which is simply one person speaking and the other person very simply listening without interrupting, which is radical. Um, And it was just two minutes. And within two minutes, this young man was speaking and, um, you know, the, the topic he was speaking about wasn't necessarily very emotionally evocative. However, I noticed his eyes started like filling up with tears and I, we had a chance afterwards to talk about the experience. And I said, you know, what was happening for you? And he said, where can you get someone to actually listen to you like this? And it was really striking to me because, you know, as a psychotherapist in the work that I do, I'm used to kind of being in that kind of listening kind of relationship. And I really realized like, wow, this simple practice of being present with another person, just how hungry people are. So this was a young man. He was a coder, um, spent his most of his days behind a computer screen. I'm not sure how much interaction he actually had with people live or virtually. And I really got to see that in all environments, we are people. Like the human comes in no matter what our work is and how important it is for us to be connected to and to be, you know, given that gift of attention and presence. So that's not something that you would necessarily go into an organization as a a selling point, really. So one of the great things about the Search Inside Yourself program specifically is it's an emotional intelligence training program. And there's a lot of research on the efficacy of building emotional intelligence with the outcomes of enhancing performance, um, up-leveling leadership, and really um, supporting well-being. So a lot of research on that. And mindfulness is a way to build emotional intelligence. So when we go into an organization and we talk about the benefits of emotional intelligence and mindfulness, we talk about those outcomes and the research associated with performance, well-being, and leadership. Can you uh, can you talk us through some of those uh, some of that research? Sure, and there's uh, research we've done on our program, um, which shows that people who um, basically the cultivation of mindfulness, which is really about paying attention with intention and being able to slow down and creating a pause between stimulus and response, slowing down that reactivity. 
allows a person to regulate their nervous system such that they can take in new information. So there's a um, what's called response flexibility and the activation of the prefrontal cortex that happens that allows us to take in new information, think creatively. And that's, um, you know, there's a number of research studies that have been done on that. Search Inside Yourself has a lot of data that we've collected after the programs that we've done that have shown that um, people who participate in the program um, are able, their self-reports are that they can pause before reacting, which is a really important leadership and life skill. And they have the ability to take in other people's perspectives um, when they're in the um, in an argument. There's some really great research out of Aetna, the healthcare company, on um, how mindfulness reduces stress, reduces employee turnover. So there's an increase in engagement, reduction in sick time and um, absenteeism. SAP uh, has some fantastic research, um, specifically on the Search Inside Yourself program, but really connected to uh, mindfulness and emotional intelligence, again, on engagement, employee well-being, um, turnover, and ultimately higher profits too. Personally, that's not why I do this, but that's really what companies, um, that's one of the metrics that companies care about. And can you tell us a little bit more about the importance and the need for emotional intelligence in the workplace? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there maybe has been sort of an old school idea that it's about profits, profits, profits. And in order for a company to be profitable, it has to work well. And one of the things that people are realizing is that people are part of a business. And so to take care of your people is, you know, there's a ripple effect in um, the impact on um, profitability, ultimately customer satisfaction, employee engagement. So the cultivation of emotional intelligence is a recognition that as people, emotions are a really big part of how we navigate our life. Sometimes we think that emotions are extraneous and they get in the way of thinking and they're problematic and they're just sort of relegated to hallmark cards. But it turns out that actually um, emotions are a really important part of decision-making. Dan Goleman, who's done a lot of writing on emotional intelligence, uh, cites a study by Antonio Damasio that really shows the connection between the part of the brain that processes emotions and how that influences the thinking part of the brain or the prefrontal cortex. And when that is disrupted, that connection, it's actually impossible for us to think clearly. So emotions are really important in how we think. They're also important in terms of how we behave because emotions um, stimulate behavior, fight, flight, like approach, avoid, So being able to be intelligent or aware of what emotions are present, what action they're prompting us to do, and to be um, intelligent or thoughtful in terms of asking yourself the question, is this the action that I want to have happen? Is it in alignment with my goals, my self-respect, my desire to keep a job? And in that pause, be able to reflect and then make a different choice. So this is where mindfulness connects. We pause, we get notice what's happening in our emotions, notice that impulse to act and ask the question, is this skillful? Is this in alignment with my goals? And that absolutely can make or break someone's 
uh, success in their their work life. As opposed to just being reactive and off the cuff and coming from whatever uh, base emotion is coming up inside of yourself. Exactly. You know, we've all gotten that email where, you know, yeah, that flush of <laughs> anger is like, ah, and that the impulse. Or we sent that email. Or we sent that email, right. And so that impulse to react is, is very hardwired in us. It's part of our nervous system um, responding to perceived threats, that automatic fight or flight. Really fantastic if there's a bus careening towards us or we're in a state where there is a, a, an immediate threat that we don't have time to think through. But our modern world requires us to think, requires us, for the most part, unless there's an immediate danger to our life, but requires us to slow down and be choiceful about our actions. That's what mindfulness does. It creates that pause and emotional intelligence helps us insert the skills into that pause so that we're basically hacking the hard wiring of that fight or flight self-protection mechanism that at one time could protect us, now can get us into a lot of trouble. And so when you come into an organization, what does the training actually look like? What kind of exercises uh, do you actually walk people through to help them uh, cultivate these skills? Um, well, we start very basically, David. We start with looking at attention, really, and recognizing that what we pay attention to and how we pay attention shapes our experience, and our experience shapes our life. So we basically start with showing that we can intentionally place our attention. Um, so right now, your attention might be on my voice. You might have had a distracting thought right now of like, oh, I hope that our listeners understand this or, oh, I hope this is recording well or I wonder what I'm having for dinner tonight. So those distractions from our thoughts become problematic in terms of our effectiveness. So that happens, but we will take people through practices of just training attention to notice that attention is like a muscle and we can intentionally train it to notice when it's wandered and it will, and then to bring it back. So attention wanders and bring it back. So we'll just focus on the breath because that's traditionally what has been used because the breath is always with us. There's some good science about um, tracking the breath also regulates the nervous system, but very simply, We'll just have people train attention to notice that they have the ability to be intentional with where you place attention. So if somebody wanted to practice that at home, uh, how long should they do that for in order to enter a more aware state or a more mindful state? You know, um, there's a lot of data. Like people always ask me, like, what's the shortest amount I can practice, get the benefits? Um, and I'll say this, that uh, just one breath is beneficial. So hmm. if you're, and, and I'll talk to you a bit more about some applications. If you, would you like to try that right now with me? Sure, let's do it. Okay. So in fact, everybody, everybody who's listening to this should be, should be following along also. So yes. let's go for it. Okay. So very simply, all I'm going to ask you to do is to give full and complete attention to one breath. What that means is not to think about the breath, but to feel the breath. So you might notice your body expanding and contracting with the breath. You might be aware of the, the air going through your nose or through your mouth. So all you have to do is just for one full cycle of breath, right from the beginning of the in-breath through the pause between the inhalation and exhalation, 
And then the exhale, all you have to do is keep your attention fully on that breath. Ready to go? All right, let's do it. Okay, so just to begin, let's take a really big breath just to refocus. Okay, and on the next breath, full and complete attention to the sensation of breath. All right. So David, what did you notice? Or what are you noticing right now? Expansion. Expansion. You know, I noticed my my uh my my body's expansion. I noticed some thoughts wanting to come up, mm-hmm. but then staying with the breath and then, then it's just kind of drifting the thoughts drifting into the background. Uh and then actually when I hit the the peak of the breath, it's a really a small moment of of really a little bit of joy. I mean, not oh. a little bit. I mean, it's really this this yeah. this joy is there and that stillness in between and then coming back down uh, yeah, the sensation of compression in my body and the breath flowing from, you know, from my belly all the way out. So that's great. So you got a lot of data. Yeah, that's fantastic. And how do you feel energetically right now? Uh, pretty good. But I have to tell you um, a little secret. Okay. I actually do this. I'm actually doing this the whole time. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I have I have some experience with uh, with mindfulness. And oh, so yeah. part of what I do during my interviews is I'm following my breath the whole time. Because, or at least as much as I can, because I notice that when I do that and I stay out of my mind, I stay much more open to the possibilities of where the interview can go instead of having kind of fixed ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I'm a lot more flexible that way. So, so I, I was kind of cheating. Well, the, I love this. It's fantastic. So a couple of things in what you said. First of all, most times when people do that, that full and complete attention to the breath, they're surprised that for the most part, there's a little bit of calm that can come. Like it's a little bit of surprise, like, oh, I can calm. And there's a reason for that. Full and complete attention to the breath activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite of the fight or flight sympathetic activation. When we're calmer, what happens is just what you're saying, David, is there's more access to more flexibility, more openness. And that This is a very simple practice. It's an introductory practice, but it's a powerful one that you can weave in through your meetings, through your interactions, um, through standing at line in the DMV when you might get agitated. So just one breath, and then we build on that. So we might have a longer breath practice of three breaths, five minutes. We might extend that into a communication practice where I'm giving my attention to the person who's speaking. When I notice my attention is wandering, find the breath, bring it back. So your initial question was, how do we train this in organizations? We come back with this um, awareness that we can actually train our attention. For some people, that's radical. They realize that you can train your muscles in your body. When I ask them how many people you know, work out, a lot of hands go up. When I ask them how many people um, work out with their mind, like train their mind, not many people raise their hand. Why? Because we don't realize we can do it. So we start with that simple practice of staying with a breath. It's not wrong when the attention wanders. That happens. But that moment you notice attention has wandered, that's a moment of mindfulness. And then you bring it back. It's like sheepdogging again and again and again and come back. The more you do that, that's how you cultivate focus. And we know how important focus is in communication, 
in completing a project, in, um, you know, being efficient. So that's a basic practice that we start with. And then with that, you'll see that bringing attention to the breath starts to slow things down a little bit. And then we can introduce more what we call skillful behavior, really, of how do I want to now um, engage with the next moment? What would be the best choice with what I do next? So it really um, gives us the power to choose instead of being run by that compulsion or reactivity that uh, most of us operate from. So how do you introduce that skillful behavior? Well, that's where emotional intelligence capacities come in. So for me, when I teach, I really borrow um, Dan Goleman's model, where he talks about um, self-awareness, self-management, awareness of others, and then relationship management. So that, um, you know, looking at defining each of the emotional intelligence capacities, and then looking at what are practices that build it. So self-awareness, for example, the ability to know not just my name and where I come from, but um, what are my preferences? What are my resources? What are my um, challenges? What are my my strengths? That so, you know, research was done um, or question was asked. Uh, the Stanford Business graduates: What is the most important skill to develop as a leader? And the unanimous response was self-awareness. So that ability to know my, my strengths and weaknesses, to um, have humility where I know that I'm not strong, to ask for help, um, to create a team where other people can balance the things that I'm not good at. And how can I really um, optimize or maximize those things I am good at? So those are examples within the self-awareness category of emotional intelligence that um, skills that I would begin to, to train people on. And, and so what does that training look like? Some of it is uh, a practice. One practice is journaling. So I might uh, give participants a prompt or some of my clients, my coaching clients, a prompt that's, um, you know, it could be when I feel most alive, I... And then just keep writing and just see what what comes out or um, things that really irritate me are or my things that frustrate me are. And just to have that kind of brain dump to access parts of ourselves that we might like kind of push away because we're so used to presenting our social media self or kind of leading with our strengths. And so we don't often take an opportunity to look at what our challenges are. And journaling is a really powerful way to, to access that. And would you say that, uh, you know, once is enough or this is something that people should do on a regular basis? (laughs) I think once can be really uh, illuminating and regular basis. Absolutely. Um, Again, I think so much of um, our presentation into the world is curated, even if it's not in social media, but we're used to presenting our strengths in sort of a, um, yeah, this way that we we believe will get us respect. But there's some uh, work that's come out of uh, CCARE, the Center for Compassion Altruism Research and Education in Stanford, that really shows that vulnerability or leading with our humanness is really what supports people connecting to us, what engenders trust, um, 
it, it helps people feel psychologically safe within teams. And this is something that uh, has, there's been some research on. It makes a team really potent and powerful. And so the more you can do these practices like mindfulness or journaling, it's really just a way for you to stay current with yourself. Yeah, I just want to support what you were saying about the power of vulnerability, um, especially at the workplace. So there was a research, there was a study done by by Google, mm-hmm. a, a doctor at Google. She headed up an entire team, yes. and they discovered that the number one factor behind top-performing teams was psychological trust. In other words, the feeling of safety yeah. that you could take a risk and put yourself out there and that other people were going to support you and accept you and accept the decisions that you were making. And I can say from personal experience, I mention this almost on every single episode <laughs> <laughs> uh, about, about the team at Hotjar, because this is really uh, a unique company that I've come to work for, where that vulnerability isn't just, uh, it's actually welcomed. Yes. You know? And that I found that I can actually admit my faults and I can admit my weaknesses and ask for help in improving them. And not only has that opened up my team to myself, but it's opened me up to suggestions from them on how I can improve. Mm-hmm. And it has just gotten my productivity, my productivity to just shoot through the roof. This is by far the most productive work I've ever done at any company. Because like you said, I always felt like I needed to present a side of myself. I always felt like I had to pretend like I knew what I was doing all the time even though much of the time I didn't. So much was facing unknown factors, unknown circumstances. And, uh, and I couldn't say like, I don't know, you know, what is actually the best way to do this? Like, I don't know, you know, was, yeah. I always had to make something up and I, you know, it just made me feel like a fraud. And so this, the, the opposite feeling of, of being able to say like, look, I don't know, like, look, I, like, like for example, I, I had to I had to write something, and I got so into my perfectionism that it took me like an hour long to write something that should have taken me like five or ten minutes. And at our next retro, that was the first thing that I said. I was like, "Look, this happened. I did this." And just the fact of admitting it removed all the guilt and all the weight. And everybody else is just like, "Yeah, we know exactly what that's like." Everybody, you know, goes through something like that, and so it's actually extremely liberating to have that vulnerability there. It's actually very empowering. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you have this experience, David. It's, and, um, it's somewhat counterintuitive, right? We think that in order to feel safe, we have to be admired and respected for being strong and, um, perfect. And it's, it's just the opposite is true. So one of the, um, skill sets that I teach within the emotional intelligence to support this psychological safety is, um, is the cultivation of empathy to really see and treat other people as people, which means that they are going to um, sometimes have like things that are challenging for them and fallibility. And so, um, you know, there's some powerful research that David Eagleman has been doing, uh, who's a neuroscientist, who talks about how our brain is wired to see people as other. Any differences we perceive we create an othering and that blocks our capacity for empathy. So when we begin to see people as similar to us, so like, just like me, David, um, you know, wants to do a good job and be approved. And just like me, David sometimes um, screws up. And there's just this somehow leveling the playing field of realizing we're all human, not only creates psychological safety, but it actually activates the part of our neurology that um, 
that is associated with empathy. So we're more likely to care for someone, reach out and help. And that is part of the um, compassion response as well. So what kind of, when, when you come into an organization, I'm guessing a lot of the organizations that invite uh, the Search Inside Yourself Institute to come and teach are already pretty open to uh, to these kinds of ideas. Is, is that is that a correct assumption? Actually, no. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, some are for sure. And, I, and, you know, as time goes on and mindfulness and emotional intelligence become much more accepted, and certainly there's a lot more research and popularization of the concepts, it's easier. But I have gone into automotive companies. Um, I just came back from actually teaching in Bhutan to uh, their Ministry of Education. Um, so it's such a wide range, tech companies, um, uh, the United Nations, like this really big cross-section how the doors get open is generally there's someone in the organization who's had some experience where mindfulness has been really a powerful tool for them to cultivate um, their own well-being, like a reduction in stress, um, reduction in anxiety. So they become sort of like the internal champions. And sometimes people are just curious because they hear that, you know, Google is doing it or, um, LinkedIn is doing it. You know, Jeff Weiner is talking a lot about compassion in the, the workplace. So there's some luminaries in, in certain fields who are popularizing this, but generally it's through someone's personal experience of transformation that the door gets opened. And so when you come in and maybe it was one person that opened the door, but other people are skeptical, what kind of response do you get? Uh, what, and how do you, how do you overcome that skepticism? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I was just teaching um, in Hong Kong to an organization, and I always ask in the beginning, um, you know, on a continuum, on one side, people who are super skeptical about mindfulness, on the other side, you know, all the way on the other hand, people who are um, have a practice. And I ask, you know, show of hands, who's on what side of the spectrum? And a couple of um, people put their hand up saying they were skeptical. And I run a two-day program. So, at the beginning of the second day, a woman came in and she, who had initially put her hand up and saying she was really skeptical. And she said, you know, I just need to share something with you. And I said, what's that? And I thought, you know, she, well, she's one of the skeptical ones. She's going to challenge me in some way. She said, you know, I've got a 14 month old daughter and I know that we're learning this to apply it in the workplace, but I went home after our training yesterday And I was just really present with my daughter in a way that I don't think I really ever have been. And I was just like so moved by that, both by her willingness to say, hey, I've changed and her willingness to let the practices affect her. And just that beauty of her coming in and being present with her, um, with her child. It was so wonderful. Um, I recently came back from working with uh, an organization in LA just actually yesterday. And um, I've been working with them for the past couple of years with some of these practices. And what they've found is that, um, you know, some of them were skeptical at first. And I just do little practices. Like one is just a minute to arrive. So oftentimes we start meetings and our brain is thinking about the last meeting we're in, or we're anticipating the next. And, We wonder why our meetings aren't productive because we're actually not there. So I teach a simple practice of just at the beginning of a meeting, just pause, turn devices off, shut them down, 
and just take one minute just to arrive. And that might just be a minute of silence. It could be a minute of naming one word of how you're arriving, like scattered, excited, whatever it is. And that just brings people into the present moment. So someone that I was speaking with yesterday at this organization said, you know, we've been using that minute to arrive in our meetings. And it's amazing how much happier people are. And and things feel like they're flowing more. There's more productivity. So this is sort of, you know, an, an anecdotal story. There's no hard evidence on it. But for me, just seeing that person who was a little skeptical about what's all this mindfulness in a very practical way, seeing this simple practice could increase engagement and ultimately effectiveness in the meeting simply just by inviting people to be present. Simply that. So I think, I think that's a great idea. Actually, I'm going to start applying that in, uh, in our meetings with, uh, with the rest of my marketing team. <laughs> and, uh, and I will report back on, on how that went because I think that's a really good idea. So great. thank you for that tip. Yes, it's an easy one. <laughs> yeah, it's a really easy one. But then what happens what happens when leaders are skeptical or not even skeptical don't buy in? Mm-hmm. Do you feel is there is there still the possibility to to shift the culture when the leaders aren't really into it? I think it's it's certainly harder um when the leaders aren't bought in because you know, we leaders by virtue of their position are people who influence, right? So ideally fantastic if they're there. And I've worked in organizations where the leaders are really vulnerable and actually talking about their experience in the, in the, the exercises. And that's fabulous. When they're not, there's something about um, whether you might call it a grassroots movement or, you know, to borrow that quote, be the change you want to see, because ultimately it feels better for us when we're present, when we can show up with kindness, with empathy, when we don't think that we need to be perfect. So bringing it in and weaving it in, just even at a personal level, within the team, um, within just one-on-one interactions, that becomes what can be called like a virtuous cycle. There's a reinforcement that happens. So if I'm more regulated because I'm using my breath, I'm more intentional about how I'm showing up, people are going to feel that. They're going to respond to me differently. They might approach me um, with, more opportunities to collaborate because I'm easier to connect with. So I start to see the benefit in my own life of my own ability to pause, my own ability to be present. So while I might not have the buy-in at the top level, I have the internal experience and that becomes reinforcing. But I'm not going to pretend that it's not a harder um, or a much easier integration when there's a culture change and that does um, get supported by leadership for sure. Yeah. The reason that I ask is because uh, a lot of member, uh, many members of our community express how the biggest challenge they have to embracing or practicing a people first approach at work is the leadership Mm -hmm. who think that they, everybody needs to be focused on the profit, on the numbers, on how many sales we're generating and not so much on the people inside the organization uh, and so I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear, how would you recommend, uh, what, what would you say to, to those people who are on the fence about embracing a people first approach? Well, I think, um, you know, again, there's some research that does show that taking care of your employees is a way of taking care of your business. Like I, I talked about the Aetna and the SAP research, and you mentioned that Google 
um, study, which is, you know, really solid evidence that um, creating environments where people can, um, you know, thrive and be optimized and become the best, there is actually a translation into profitability and effectiveness. So, I, I kind of sometimes say it's the Trojan horse that you lead with the benefit, the business case, if you will. Um, and then ultimately that creates the opening for um, more of these people first uh, practices and orientation, because I think that there's enough data out there that does show that taking care of your people does create uh, is is makes good sense in terms of um, of your business. So I shared that uh, Google study once with a former boss of mine. He didn't even open the email. Yeah. I didn't stay much longer. Yeah. Well, see, there, there you go. And then there's that question of goodness of fit, like your personal values and the values of the organization. Is there a gap there? The values of leadership, is there a gap there? And what do you do with that? It's right. a challenge for sure. And then, yeah. Uh, if you could recommend one resource uh, to our listeners to help them succeed by putting people first, what would it be? You know, I think there's, um, I, I, I will go back to the practice of mindfulness. And I will say that, you know, there are a lot of um, guided meditation um, apps out there. There's Calm, there's Headspace. And I think that leaders who are able to, to, integrate that practice just even two minutes five minutes a day um they their increase of self-awareness arises such that they begin to see it when what they're doing is in alignment with their values and what makes sense and so bar none i would say the most important resource is a mindfulness practice and there are many supports um for that right now. So I agree 100%. Uh, I, and I also feel actually that the number one resource that you could possibly do is mindfulness uh, because it's just like, it's, it's almost a panacea. It's one of those few things. It's one of those single actions that you could take that has such a broad effect across the spectrum of your health, your mental well-being, your, your sense of energy, your focus, your, your determination. I mean, there's just so many areas of, uh, of your life that it impacts that in my experience, there has been no other single thing that I've done that has had yeah. such a wide-reaching effect as having a regular meditation practice. Yes. So I wholeheartedly agree. I'm, you know, I'm fully a convert. <laughs> That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I have noticed it's just its power. I work with some really high-performing leaders, and just the difficulty that they often say, like, I have no time. It's like when you have no time, that means you really do need to do it. And yeah, there's actually there's actually a great quote, which is, um, "If you don't have thirty minutes a day to spend meditating, that means you need to be spending three hours." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> was that John Kevin Zinn? I don't know. I don't. I don't remember where that yeah. quote comes from, but uh, I thought one. it was perfect. It's a good one. And one of the things I love about Meng, who developed the Search Inside Yourself program, being an engineer, he knows how to like create things like optimizing to like the least effort for the maximum outcome and that one breath practice or the three breath practice. And I'll lead you through a three breath practice. Maybe as we close um, is, is a nice sort of um, 
entry point, an easy access point that then hopefully whets the appetite that people begin to practice a little bit more. So what's the three breath practice? Okay, so this is advanced version. We're moving from <laughs> one to three here. So three breaths, um, and I'll just tell you what it is and we'll let you do it on your own time. The first breath is, again, to give full and complete attention to the breath. Again, feeling the sensation of the body breathing. The second breath, the instruction is to relax the body. And that's not to slouch, but just to notice if there's any tension and just to release that. The third breath is to ask the question, what's most important now and see what arises. Want to try it? Let's do it. Okay. So again, I always like to start with just an intentional, really big breath to breathe in and breathe out. And then on your own time, first breath, full and complete attention to the breath. Second breath, relaxing the body. And the third breath, what's most important right now? What came up for you, David? What was most important for me right now? Yeah. Spending time with my family. And I mean that, I mean that right now because I actually, um, I've got this massive to-do list and, uh, and it's Friday afternoon at the time of this recording. And I don't, it doesn't look like I'm going to have enough time uh, for the rest of the day. And so what I was planning on doing was just charging through everything and just, you know, not being able to go outside of my office. And actually the feeling that I have is no, my daughter had a half day, so she's at home already. Actually, what I should do is go spend out, spend some time with them and then come back and see how much I can get through. How does that feel as you hear yourself say that? Yeah, pretty good, actually. It feels a lot more like I actually feel more energized than, than I like. And I feel more energy to then later on tackle these other things than I would if I had to like drudge through these things. And then I wouldn't have energy to spend time with, uh, with my kids. So Fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to go do that. Awesome. And I could tell you about the neuroscience in that, uh, or we can save that for another time, but um, I'm so glad that you had that experience. Actually, I would love to hear that. Okay. Okay. So um, what we're doing, when we're kind of busy, distracted, again, the mind is not in the present moment or we're ruminating on something. So the instruction of giving full and complete attention to the breath, it gives your mind something to focus on. Instead Instead of saying, just stop thinking about that email, it's impossible. Focus on the breath. And again, remembering full and complete attention to the breath relaxes the nervous system. The, um, the, the softening of the body or the relaxing the body also supports the rest and relaxation. And what happens then is we have access to the parts of our brain that can think with more wisdom, the prefrontal cortex that's not run on automatic, right? So we're working with the attention we're working with the body, and then we're asking that question, what's most important now? And we've primed the system so that we can actually listen in to these other parts of us that might not be so accessible when we're running on automatic or just trying to get from one thing to the other. So it's a powerful, portable, easy practice that is just a realignment. All right. That's also coming into the marketing team as an exercise. (laughs) 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, one last thing, where can people find out more about uh, you and the work that you're doing? Primarily, my work is through the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. So that's uh, the short name for that is Silly. So silly.org, S-I-Y-L-I. Yeah, exactly. It's spelled a little differently. Yeah, S-I-Y-L-I.org. Um, you can also uh, find me on my website, laurieschwanbeck.com. And uh, I offer a variety of programs, uh, leadership training programs in a variety of different um, spaces. I also do individual coaching. So Great. Thanks again. Thanks, David. Enjoy the time with your daughter. How precious. I will. Thank you. Thanks for listening, my fellow human. We know how fast-paced life is. And so if you're listening to this on your daily commute, or while running, or even cooking, you can always go to hotjar.com slash humans and look for today's episode. That's where you'll find access to all the resources and humans we talked about, the full transcript of the conversation, and even links to related episodes. And if you liked today's episode, please help us out by leaving your honest rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The more honest feedback we get, the more we can improve the show for you, and the more this podcast will be discovered by other humans. It's a win-win situation. Until next time, take care and be human.